Hey, Cole, are you ready to bust a move this week on Second to Die? I'm sorry, but I am in my 30s now, and my moving days are over. Well, too bad, because I'm about to take it from the windmill to the wall with the 2016 slasher film, The Windmill. Get it? From the windmill. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> no, I promise I get it. Well, if you did, you would have been laughing in hysterics. Welcome to Second to Die, horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. Sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. This week, we're going to be talking about... Windmills. Windmills. The machines of my people. Well... I feel like you need to explain that. Yeah, I think I have I've may have referenced it before, but my mother's family is very very Dutch and I grew up in a in Western Michigan. It's a very Dutch settlement like immigration. Like there's literally Dutch language newspapers there. And the Dutch store, the Dutch store that had the the salty licorice. And the Dutch store and salty licorice in general, which we have discovered so for people who don't know, here's there's going to be a few Netherlands facts in this episode, but for people who don't know, the Dutch are really into licorice, like black licorice, and they sell it in varying degrees of saltiness and well, and saltiness and firmness. And you kind of can pick and choose. I mean, there must have been what when we were there in that little store, 20 to 30 different kinds at least. Yeah. And so you can get like extra hard, extra salty or like, you know, like extra hard, low salty, like things like that. And just for funsies, we got I think the saltiest one they had and it was 100% inedible. Yeah, it was terrible. Um, in retrospect, and honestly, we should mention this to your mom before she comes down to visit next so that she can bring some. I wouldn't mind trying like a milder level of saltiness because I like licorice and I like salt and I even like salty, like salty candies and stuff because there's a lot of like Asian candies that have salt in them. So I would be really interested in trying one that wasn't just us being ridiculous and buying the most extreme. Yeah, well, the thing is, I remember growing up and eating salty licorice. Like when we would go to um, Dutch Village, which was a thing, I remember eating licorice, but I never remembered it being like that heinously salty. So as kids, I'm assuming we were given like the milder version of it. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, the next time we're up there... Or if, you know, my mom comes down, I would definitely be open to her giving us more of, like, a regular one, because that was, like, whoa. Anyway, there's your lesson. The Dutch, they eat salty licorice. So, that being said, this film is called The Windmill. The original title was The Windmill Massacre. They dropped the massacre part, because why not? And it is an actual Dutch film, though it is an English-language Dutch film, which is whatever. A lot of people probably know English is very commonly spoken in the Netherlands. In populated regions. Where my mom's family is from? Not so much. Yeah. <laughs> so my my mother's family is from Friesland, which is so... Oh, my God. I We probably shouldn't go that far into it. No. So let me just, <laughs> let me just give this explanation really quick for people. This is like second to geography right now. Real quick. For people who are like, I know what Dutch is kind of, but maybe not. Or the Netherlands, whatever. Here's the deal. 
And I'm also going to explain for a lot of people, because this is something I actually feel people don't necessarily know, is the difference between the Netherlands and Holland. Because they are sort of interchangeable in the English language, but they actually do not refer to the same things, technically speaking. So, the Netherlands is made up of 12 regions, kind of like how we have states. And two of the regions are North and South Holland. Those regions together make up Holland. Amsterdam, for example, is in North Holland. But there are plenty of other regions, one of which is Friesland, which is where my mother's family is from. But, like, a lot of them are kind of country. Yeah. Anyways, that's everyone's geography lesson today. Thank you for joining us, kids. There will be a quiz later on. Okay. So, that being said, why are we talking about this right now? Because windmills are popular in Holland, and I think people associate with windmills with Holland. And so, what do they do? Most importantly, they pump water out of lowlands and essentially back into the rivers, like, beyond the dikes that they have and the netherlands is kind of famous for having what they call reclaimed land which is literally land that they have taken back from the seas and lakes that like should be part of a lake but they like essentially like pump it out and use dikes to prevent that 17 percent of the land in the netherlands is reclaimed that's upsetting yeah but it works for them so anyways I think we're talking about a movie. Let's talk about this movie. Yeah. Second to geography. So, <laughs> yeah, that's everyone's geography. I feel like everyone feels more informed. I feel more informed. So, it's directed by a gentleman. He's Dutch, so I'll, I'll pronounce it in, in a Dutch way. His name is Nick Jongerius. He also was one of the writers, along with Chris W. Mitchell and Susie Quid. What? I like her name. <laughs> I like... I just like that the first guy had like a a super like well far more complex name and then it's like Mitchell. Yeah. So um okay. So that being said, there's some cast members. I'll probably mention them as I mention the characters or I might forget whatever, but I'm not going to go over the whole cast right now. And I don't have a lot of backstory on this movie other than I don't know. It is what it is. It is. So it's 2016. I will talk about the plot and there's going to be heavy spoilers. And I will preface this by saying this. When I first watched this movie, I liked the beginning of it and then I hated the rest of it and I thought it was poorly done. But then I thought back on it and I think I was viewing it in the wrong way. It is very akin to like a 90s slasher film, but more like a 90s like, made-for-TV movie slasher film. Honestly, it kind of reminded me of, like, like a movie-length episode of Buffy or something. It was that, like, Monster of the Weeky kind of feeling. That being said, let's get into it. I did like it because it is set in the Netherlands, and there's a lot of, like, Europe and, like, languages and stuff, and so that's gonna get me hooked just to begin with, but it didn't carry the day ultimately. Why? Let's discuss. Answering his own questions, it's fine. <laughs> I know. Thank God I didn't have that energy drink. So the movie opens up and we have Jennifer. She's played by Charlotte Beaumont. Jennifer is an Aussie. The actress is not Australian, but she is doing an accent. And it's actually okay. Her accent is fine. And she's... <laughs> what? It's okay. It's yeah. fine. That's exactly what it is. She's working as an au pair for the DeVries family. Very common Dutch name. Actually means the Fries. Just for people out there wondering. Nobody. 
And they are calling her Julie, which is mysterious because we know from the credits, well, we know from IMDb, that her name is Jennifer. So the dad quickly finds out that she is lying about who she is. Her name is not Jennifer, it's Julie. So instead of taking the time to explain... You mean her name is not Julie, it's Jennifer? Oh, yeah. Carry on. Regardless. Instead of taking the time to explain the problem and why she's using a different name, which, to be honest, could literally be... He basically, like, finds her passport, which could be easily explained as, well, I don't go by that name. I've always gone by this name because people use different names, right? That they do. But instead, she smashes a pot over his head and runs out of the house. So that's not suspicious at all. I feel like... I feel like that could have been handled better. Don't be suspicious. Don't be suspicious. Clack. (laughs) Crash. I mean, nothing says call the police on me more than smashing somebody over the head with a pot and then running out, leaving the scene. In that specific scenario, maybe, I feel like there are other things that might inspire people to call the police faster. Mm, Yeah, potentially. So, okay. So we learned through flashbacks and dreams and stuff that basically Jennifer had this very abusive father and it becomes very clear even before the film explains everything that she ended up setting fire to their little like trailer camper that they lived in back in Australian with her father still alive in it. So and then she fled the country. That's intense. Yeah, I mean... I think I think at this point we can all agree that Jennifer has zero chill. Yeah, no. We also learn later on in the movie. I'm not gonna, this is not going to be all chronological because it's just easier to explain this way that not only did she kill her father who was abusive to her, but accidentally her little brother was also in the trailer. Oh, that's sad. She had actually carried him out, but somehow between pouring gasoline all over everything and lighting it on fire, the kid had run back in. It actually doesn't make sense because it's literally a trailer. So there's one door and the room that she starts the fire in is the room that you walk into. So there's zero way that that kid could have run back in without her seeing it. But whatever. Whatever. I mean, this movie is quite literally about like a demonic possessed Miller. So like we're going to suspend our disbelief a little bit. All right. So then what the movie does, and actually, I actually appreciated the method and it does it, is it introduces us to essentially the rest of the cast through short little snippets, not so long that you get bored, but enough to kind of give us an idea of who these people are. So the next guy we meet is this doctor. I think his name is Noah. I actually, I'm not 100% on that, but he's at a museum and he's like, like, sketching some pic like he's like drawing sketches based on the art which i guess is something people do but then he has like some weird memory thing and he like runs away and like ducks into this back room and then like does some cocaine about it because let me tell you if there's anything that helps a freak out it is cocaine oh you mean literally does cocaine okay oh i mean quite literally does cocaine about it okay Gentle listener, that's also just like an inside joke between the two of us is we will often like use the term doing cocaine about it for just like general unhealthy coping mechanisms. Yeah. We have a weird sense of humor. That's why I had to clarify. Anyway, carry on. (laughs) All right. So we get a couple other introductions that I'm not going to go through all of them, but ultimately what happens is everybody ends up on this tour bus called Happy Holland Tour Bus, and they're going to go like tour windmills and shit. And it's Jennifer, 
a Japanese guy named Takashi, this French aspiring photographer slash model slash actress named Ruby, a British war vet named Jackson that they sometimes call Jack, uh, the doctor, and then this British business guy named Douglas and his son, Kurt. Okay. And then there's the driver. His name is, well, we would say Abe, but it's like Abe in Dutch. Meh. Anyways. Meh. So, naturally, on the tour, the bus breaks down. Who didn't see this coming? And then, weirdly enough, the next scene it, it breaks down before the first windmill. The next scene, it's nighttime, which, to me, immediately made me go, like, why the fuck have they literally been waiting for hours without calling anybody? Because they're not calling anybody. It ultimately makes a little bit more sense because, spoiler alert, the bus driver in the very end, it's a twist, ends up being in league with the monster. So this bus driver, this tour bus driver essentially takes tourists and like takes them to this like evil Miller guy for the Miller to kill. Okay. Why does he do this? I'll talk about it in a moment. Well, why the bus driver does it? I have no idea. Why the Miller kills people, I'll talk about in a moment. If Scooby-Doo has taught me anything, it's for money. <laughs> it's not for money. I think it's actually, I, I mean, it's for Satan, basically. So, okay. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So anyways, they decide they need to go get help. They remember that the closest village is like a mile back down the road. But Jennifer is like, what about that windmill up there? Oh, and also none of them have cell service. So Jennifer and Jackson, the British war vet, go to try to reach the windmill. Wait. Do windmills have houses inside of them, like lighthouses? No. Windmills have mills inside of them, but they I think they see it moving, so they assume somebody is in it, which actually is also false, because it's not powered by people, it's powered by the wind. Like, it's literally in the name, girl. <sighs> but frequently, the millers do live near the windmills, and there actually is a house near the windmill, which is very common. Okay. So, they're splitting up the party. Always a good start in a horror movie. Shitty. Shitty ideas. And Jackson is just sitting there minding his own business when all of a sudden he falls down. Why does he fall down? Because somebody cuts his legs from at the ankles and he just like doesn't have any feet anymore with a scythe. And it's at this time that we learn that like the previous night before, Jackson had had some, like, PTSD episode while in the red light district and uh, snapped a sex worker's neck. So, oh, my God. So, again, a horror movie is a very disrespectful place for sex workers. Rage. Yeah. And then we kind of learned that what's... This happens later in the movie, but what I'll tell you, what's happening is all of these people have these like very strong like sinful past actions they've done and the miller kills sinners that don't repent for their actions okay formulaic yes done before yes but i kind of dig it i'm on the fence about it part of the thing that i don't like about it is all of these people on this tour their past sin is essentially like murdering somebody and i'll get to like who each person murders in a second but I feel like they had room to be creative with some of these other, like, with some other, like, weird things. Like, real quick, I'll just kind of go over it. Like, the Ruby, the French woman, she used to be, like, this big in Japan, like, face model for toothpaste. And she hired, this is literally how it explains it. It's so stupid. She hired some Yakuza to cut the face of a rival model who later killed herself in shame. 
That's extreme. Yep. And then um, I don't. So Takashi, the Japanese guy, I don't even 100% know what he did. His grandmother had died, but they don't make it clear whether he had part in killing her. But he's very remorseful. And the miller ends up sparing him because of that. Okay. He is later killed by the bus driver, which is real rude. It's very, very rude. Yeah. But I'm getting way ahead of myself. And then Douglas, the business guy, basically strangled his um, ex-wife to death and is taking their kid. In the movie, he explains that he did it because she was seeking full-time custody and he was going to lose custody rights and never see his son again. When it's like, well, if you're the type of dude that strangles somebody to death, maybe you shouldn't have custody of this kid. Exactly. Like, that seemed to be a good decision. Anyway. Okay, so, back to some of the plot. So, Jennifer basically tells everybody that Jackson was killed, and nobody believes her, and then all of a sudden, a figure pushes their bus over, like, into this little, like, ditch canal thing. Everybody runs out of the bus, including Kurt, who is the younger kid, he's Douglas's son, and he cuts his hand, and then we learn that he's a hemophiliac. It has... Nothing to do with the story. It's literally never revisited, but they get really mad about it because, I don't know, somehow they're blaming this all on Jennifer, and they think that she's making it up about Jackson getting murdered, even though somebody literally pushed their van over. They still don't believe her. It's like the weirdest thing. (laughs) So then they're like, well, what are we going to do? So they're like, well, I guess we'll walk towards that windmill. Okay. Sure. Yeah, why not? And on the way to the windmill, they find, like, the most rickety-ass, broken-down, murdery-looking abandoned house that has ever existed. And they're like, that looks like a good place to take shelter. So they go in it. Of course they do. Mm-hmm. I hate it. It does work out for them because then it starts to thunderstorm just because it wasn't spooky enough. I do like a dark and stormy night. Mm-hmm. But I don't like a dark and stormy because there's rum in it. And I don't like rum. Yeah. They also realize that Takashi is missing at this time. And I, of course, was like, this dude is the only ethnic minority in this cast. He is toasty toast, right? Like, toasty toast. Yes. But he ultimately did not die because that's when we learned that. Yes. That's when we learned that the Miller spared him. Fun fact about him. He, so the French woman speaks a little bit of Japanese in her character because she used to be like this model, like um, a toothpaste model in Japan. And so she and Takashi can communicate a little bit. But the actor who played Takashi is the only one who actually spoke Japanese. And apparently he ad-libbed some lines and nobody knew until they were doing like the final edits. And they were like, oh, yeah, he didn't say 100% what was in the script, but they didn't care. And honestly, it's not subtitled, so it literally doesn't matter. That's hilarious. And I love it so much. Wouldn't it be so funny if he just didn't know the lines and was just like saying random shit? Okay, anyways. So, while they're at the house, they find this old document that's a warrant for the death penalty for Miller Hendrick for witchcraft and making deals with the devil. And then we learn the sort of legend, which is, they say, a legend that's known throughout the country of a Miller who sold his soul to the devil to keep his windmill running, whether there was wind or not. And then people also in the town discovered that he was killing people and crushing the bones of the people he murdered into his flower. So the people all rallied together and like burned his windmill with him in it alive. That's rude. He was just trying to provide the people with calcium rich flour. Sure. I don't like bones though. 
enriched flour. <laughs> I wonder how many bones he put in it. How many bones do you want? Oh. Okay, so anyways. The next person to die, it's a boring scene, is the doctor. We learn that during surgery, he basically performed a surgery while high and killed a woman. Okay, he dies. So, Takashi ultimately comes back and basically is like, there is this person out here killing everybody. And nobody had believed Jennifer up until this point. But when Takashi says it, they believe him because he's a man. Yep. So. I was about to say. <laughs> yes. He doesn't have a loom to wander around his body, therefore is not susceptible to hysteria. Yes. Oh, the other kind of interesting thing about this movie that this is a good thing that I liked. The way that the monster kills people and the way that we learn about people's past misdeeds is through these almost like dreamlike hallucinations, pseudo akin to Nightmare on Elm Street, in that in Nightmare on Elm Street, a lot of the murders happen. I'm trying to think how to say a lot of the way the manners of people being killed have something to do with the character of the person being killed. Yeah. And that is basically like pseudo mimicked in this because there's these hallucinations. A lot of times it's like, like the guy who, who um strangled his wife, he's literally like strangled with the rope so tight until his like head gets decapitated or he's decapitated. Okay. I'm on board. And so it's, it's stuff like that. I do like symbolic murders a lot. The death scenes are also kind of fun. I mean, they're like, su- they're all over the top. Like almost all of them are just super over the top. Very a la Nightmare on Elm Street. That's why this reminded me so much of, I think, like a 90s slasher. And once I started seeing it in that light, I was like, this is better than I thought it was. I was trying to look at it more as like a modern horror movie. It is. It does not stand up to most modern horror in terms of um, interestingness. Interest? No, I don't like that. We're going to go with mine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um. Okay. So then all of a sudden they hatch this plan where they're going to siphon the gas from the tour bus and burn down the windmill. I don't know why they think this will accomplish anything because there is nothing to suggest that burning down the windmill is going to do anything to stop this person or this this miller, who, by the way, looks like this like weird shriveled up monster. I don't know. Whoever did the special effects is pretty good. So then, in sort of the penultimate scene, essentially, the Miller is about to kill Jennifer when Kurt... So Kurt is the only innocent. He's the young kid, the hemophiliac kid. Kurt's the only innocent in the whole thing. And so the Miller doesn't kill Kurt. And so the Miller is about to kill Jennifer, and Kurt basically finds a lighter and like sets the mill on fire, which in turn makes the Miller who's about to kill Jennifer, go up in fire and not kill Jennifer. And it is so stupid. But it sort of makes sense. Cause like the legend has it, he made a deal with the devil. So the townspeople burned down his windmill with him inside of it. And he's linked to the windmill. Cause the deal was for the windmill to keep spinning. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I guess I get that. I still didn't like it. I would have been upset had the movie ended like this, but it does redeem itself in the final scene because basically Jennifer and Kurt are sitting there and you're like, okay, so we have the final girl and the innocent kid. This is going to be the climax of the movie, or this is going to be the finish of the movie and like whatever, typical, except all of a sudden they're looking at the flames in the windmill and the miller appears again in the flames and you're like, that's weird. I thought he was dead. But whatever, I guess they're just going to say, like, 
he's not dead and the legend lives on, blah, blah, blah. Until a giant metal hook on a chain blasts through Jennifer's skull and splatters her brains all over Kurt's face. And I quite literally laughed out loud because it was so ridiculous and unexpected and incredible at the same time. Jesus. And then Kurt screams. (laughs) I mean, it was... It was funny. And then an innocent child screams. <laughs> well, not like that, but it's just in that whole, like, they thought they were okay. And then, like, it was just, like, brains all over his face. I don't know. It, ha- it There's a humorous element to it, trust me. It's, I think it was supposed to be kind of, like, interesting. Okay. And then the actual final, final, final scene is Abe the bus driver is back from the dead because he was killed by Jennifer, too. So, I guess there's something going on with him. And he's in the city again and tourists are getting on his tour bus again. He's getting another load that he obviously is going to take to the Miller. Dun, dun, dun. That's the actual end. There's a lot of load jokes there, but I'm not going to make them. I don't think we made a single sexual joke this, this episode so far. We're great. We're doing a great job this time. Yeah. It's all highbrow humor from here. Highbrow humor and geographical facts. We're rebranding. Okay. So, my quick final thoughts. Like I've said before, I didn't hate, hate this movie. It is sort of cheesy and like a, and like very sort of monster of the week made for TV movie-ish. But if you don't mind that kind of a situation, it's not like the worst thing in the universe. The death scenes were interesting. It is sort of, it really just kept reminding me of this like low budget Nightmare on Elm Street thing. Not that it's low budget, but I guess I don't mind that. I mean more like a wannabe kind of Nightmare on Elm Street situation that didn't quite achieve it, but it was okay. It's not, the thing is not unwatchable. Yeah. But it's not like the best thing. I wish that they had explored more interesting things with what people's past sins were because quite literally everybody is just somebody that killed somebody, essentially. Yeah. And aside from that, it was like, I don't know. It's okay. I I wouldn't say don't watch it, but I'm not going to tell people to watch it. I'll put it that way. But if you do watch it, order some salty licorice to eat while you watch it. Yeah. I think immersion would help this movie. Some speculas, some salty licorice. Wooden shoes. Wooden shoes. Chocolate jimmies on bread. I'm sorry, what? I never told you about that. Like, you know Jimmy's that you put on ice cream? The there are the Dutch eat chocolate versions of those just like sprinkled on bread for breakfast. What the fuck? Are you talking about sprinkles? Yeah, but we call them Jimmy's in the Midwest. What? It is. That's what we call them. Nope. It's fine. Because it's cool. You're wrong, but that's fine. No, because sprinkles are the round ones. Like sprinkles are the round ones that you sprinkle on. Jimmy's are the like uh, what do you call that shape? Those like oblongy ones. It's all sprinkles. It's fine. It's cool. It's not as descriptive. It doesn't need to be. No. It's fondant. It's literally just fondant you're putting on your ice cream. Mm, I like ice cream. Anyways, that is the windmill. Now tell me what you're going to talk about. All right, Peaches. I'm very, very excited about this week's book. Do you remember the venue... The book I did for our wedding anniversary. 
Yes, by TJ Payne. Yes, it was 20 episodes ago. Can you believe it was 20 episodes? Oh my God. 20 episodes ago. I thought it was so much fun. Well, I have another book by that author for you. That's why this week I am telling you all about In My Father's Basement (laughs) by TJ Payne. Yes, yes, I know. You've seen a porn like that. I get it. I'm just going to say, and the, the hopes and dreams of making no sexual references are really, really fading away at this point. They're fading fast. <laughs> um, I think it's his second published novel. I'm not sure. He has one other one, and they both came out in 2019. But if you look at like his author page, it has like the other one, then this one, then the venue, and a little cute little row. So I'm just working my way backwards, but I'm taking my time because I only have one more left, and then I have to wait for him to write another book, and I'm really bad at being patient. <laughs> Well, the venue was really cool, actually. I loved the venue. It was so good. Still probably one of my favorite books that I've read for this podcast and is probably the one that I would recommend the highest. It's just a lot of fun. And he was super cool because he actually listened to the episode. And commented. I know. Mainly because I read him a little bit for having someone use a barbell as a weapon. That was very nice. So he's a sweet baby angel in my book. Yeah. No, we like him a lot. Anyway, so, time for the cover. Uh Uh-oh. Looks like somebody's coming in my father's basement. And there it is. (laughs) There it is. There it is. All right. So, gentle listener, the cover is a guy holding a hammer standing at the top of some basement stairs. Honestly, it's about what I would expect. I hope he's not going to hammer in my father's basement. I'll be here all night, folks. Okay, that's done. I'm n- no more of these cheap, low-hanging fruit jokes. <laughs> you were trying really hard with that second one, too. That one was... No, that one was good. That it was, would be, I hope he doesn't hammer my father's basement, not hammer in. But it's called In My Father's Basement, so I was like, you know. Yeah, I know. And then it ended up ruining the joke. <laughs> okay. All right, oh. let's take a look at the blurb. A 60-year-old handyman goes on a murder spree abducting and torturing people with hand tools. After he's caught, the media wants to hear his story. What made this old man snap? Why did he do horrible things? Or Why did he do the horrible things he did? What really happened down there in his basement? The public fascination in the handyman swells, but he'll only tell his gruesome story to one person, his estranged son. Yes, I know there's I'm... a lot of innuendos in that blurb. Lower your eyebrows, Maximilian. I'm still getting sex from this. Like, that blurb did not help it at all. <laughs> I'm still getting a family deck scene. Cut that. He I... won't. I guarantee you, this is probably still an episode. I mean, mark my words now, gentle listener. Ew. Okay. I mean, go on. I'm, it has sparked my interest. Well, it's about to lose it. So, well, I, okay. If your interest is purely sexual, it's about to lose it. The book itself was good. I liked it. My favorite thing about this reading experience was we know exactly what we're walking into because the board tells us like murder yeah. spree happens. He'll only talk to his son. Oh no. I wonder what's going to happen. He talks to his son. Like it's pretty simple. Sure. Like. Clearly, it's going to be from the son's point of view because it's in my father's basement. Like, uh, that's where we're going. So there's not going to be a lot of surprises in the overall plot, 
But the author manages to weave a lot of surprises into the details. I don't know. It'll make sense later because I'm going to give like a very minor and early on example of it because I obviously don't want to ruin all the surprises, but I want to kind of like give an example. Try not to use that word again. So let's go ahead and get into it. Our opening scene is actually really well done. A cop is responding to a mass killing at a college dorm. And as he finds each body, we get, like, flashes of the scene of that character's actual death. Okay. So it's like, you know, like, I don't know. Someone hears sounds in the hallway and opens the door and gets smashed in the forehead with a hammer. Like, that sort of that sort of thing. It's really intense, but it's really well done. A quick note about the gore level here. It's graphic, but not overly so. It's not like The Summer I Died or Exquisite Corpse level of graphic, but definitely a little bit more than your standard horror. It was enough to stand out without being like, like, I can't handle it. Sure. Also, quick note, I liked this one just like I liked the venue. So basically, this is now a TJ Payne fan account. (laughs) It is what it is. Get used to it. Normalize it. Accept it. Our opening scene ends with a cop arresting our mass killer, who is then named the Handyman, not just because he looks like your average everyday old guy handyman, but also because he murders people with tools. I like a really good nicknamed killer, though. Like, I don't... Yeah, they don't really do that so much anymore. I think it's because it they try to really downplay the, like fame notoriety aspect of serial killers yeah so sensationalizes them too much yeah so we then jump to our main character his name is isaac he is walking from his car to his job at best buy when he gets a call from a magazine asking questions about his dad and he's super confused and just like hangs up and then his phone blows the hell up and he's like well not literally you know what i mean right ringing He's like, that's weird. So he turns off his phone, goes inside, and everyone on staff is watching like one of those big TVs that they hang on the wall at Best Buy. And that's when he finds out that his dad was arrested for a mass murder and bodies were found chained up in the basement of his childhood home. That's also when everyone else finds out. Oh, boy. Could you even imagine? I can't, but the book tells you. <laughs> um, and it jumps ahead from there to a couple years later at that point. Mm-hmm. Isaac is struggling a little bit because he's known as the son of a mass murderer in this small town, which when I was first reading this book, my immediate plan for a joke was to say, with the right kind of girl, that could easily get him laid. But TJ Payne beat me to that because at one point later on in the book, it totally does get him laid. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's such a fandom for that kind of stuff. That's very real. Anyway, so we see an example of him unable to get a job because... People are really just interested in knowing more about his father. So, like, he's in a job interview, and the interviewer starts asking weird questions about his dad. And then it's like, you're actually not qualified, but I saw your name in my resume pile, and I wanted to talk to you. I'm a real big fan of serial killers. Which feels very realistic. It does feel realistic. And actually, I was just about to say, there are so many people who get so into that. And obviously, there's a ton of, like, true crime super fans and stuff. And I've said this before, I'll say it just real quick again. I don't, I'm totally cool with that. I'm so fascinated by like strange, dark, and mysterious things. But I, the like 
sexualization and fetishization of serial killers is kind of where I draw the line at being like, that's not super cool. Yeah. It's a little weird. Okay. Anyway, we also find out that he buys old tools from a thrift shop run by Mennonites. Just kind of a <laughs> random side note. Farm witches. Uh, farm witches. Yes. <laughs> run by the farm witches. And sells them online, claiming that they were his father's tools. Oh. So he'll be like, authentic hand- or tool used by the handyman, $500, and it'll sell. I mean, aside from the fact that it's fraud and illegal, that's a great little hustle. Oh, yeah. No, I totally support it. If your dad's actions affect your future negatively like that, you deserve it to be able to make some money off of that at the exact same time. Also fraud, but whatever. That's fine. He also gets contacted by a man who works at the prison that his father is housed in, offering to set up meetings in a private room with him on the condition that they record the conversations and sell them for like 60 grand to this one person who wants them. So the son is going to get private meetings? Yes. So the son has not visited his father. Okay. At this point, like he wants nothing to do with him. And Isaac, the son, is the only name on the visitors list. Uh, okay, okay. And so Walter, the handyman, just has not gotten any any visits. And so this guy from the prison is like, I had someone approach me. She said that if I can get these interviews, she will pay me $60,000. Sure. You and I can split it. Like, I can make this happen. Yeah, go for it. That sort of thing. So Isaac's like, mm, sure. I feel like the content of these interviews is kind of like, the primary appeal to this book i don't know it's hard for me to come up with a lot of detail to discuss in this one because i don't want to spoil it it's new it's good like i really just want people to give it a gander themselves this one actually is a lightning fast read i promise (laughs) uh as opposed to apparently the audiobook for last week's is like 12 hours and i was like it's a lightning fast read i swear All right, so I'm going to try my best to give you some details without ruining it. Isaac gets his dad slowly talking more and more about what happens. There's this really interesting, like, philosophical point where Walter, the handyman, talks about everyone having anger inside of them, but we all have a threshold of expressing that anger that shuts off after a certain point, which keeps most of us from resorting to extreme violence. And... Anger is basically the only emotion that I feel comfortable interacting with. So I kind of see it. My threshold is long before violence, but usually after shouting or saying things I don't mean, and usually around the time that I start angry crying. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I think I have something inside me that converts anger into anxiety, to be honest with you. So I just run on anxiety. Max is always like, you're so warm. And I'm like, thanks. It's the anxiety. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, so Walter tells the story of when he lost his threshold, which occurred when he was working on the sewage pipe of a college dorm. Bum, bum, bum. The residents didn't give a shit that he was working. So all day long, they would turn their water back on and then like use the toilet and flush. So he would get sprayed with their shit, like their literal shit. Yeah. It's a really good, if somewhat heavy-handed and explicitly mentioned later, commentary on the way that our society treats people in vocational professions. Oh, sure. Which, in all honesty, people 
with vocations have much less debt and usually higher salaries. So who's really winning here? The answer is the twisted higher education system and the wealthy people who own student loan companies eat the rich. Yeah. No, we talk about it actually quite often about how gross in America it is that certain jobs are looked down upon as being lesser for some reason. The pandemic, I think, did put a little bit of light on it about how like all these essential workers are people that like society says don't respect, but like people that are 100% support society. But I still don't think that people respect them. And that's still gross. Also, they were essential workers. But man, as soon as the country opened back up and they started asking for living wages, they sure as hell weren't anymore. Mm, that's the real tea. Gross. Anyway, Walter also tells the story of the first person he kidnapped and put in the basement. She was, surprise, surprise, a sex worker. Because, of course, she was. Ugh. He hired her and brought her to his house, but they just had a lovely evening. And when he pulled out his money to pay for more of her time, she saw that he had a whole bunch of cash because he'd just been paid for a job and tried to rob him. So he fought back, hitting her with a lamp on the counter and then eventually chained her to a metal loop embedded in the ground like you do. In his basement, like metal loop. I mean, concrete. who doesn't have that? Well, there's this whole scene where he sets up the basement while she's apparently like unconscious upstairs in a closet. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, we don't have basements here, but that makes sense. If, now, we, if we did, it would have to have those dungeon features. Yes, of course. Why wouldn't it? Now, here is the really important part of why I'm breaking down this weird, like, he hits her with a lamp that's on the counter. Like, that's an interesting detail. Well, mild spoiler, dead ahead, in case y'all want to skip ahead. Uh, Isaac is later back at his childhood home, and he checks the counter in question because he doesn't remember this lamp that his father mentioned. And his dad was even like, I used to leave that lamp on at night when you were out with your friends. Don't you remember? And Isaac's like, I don't remember that lamp being on that counter. I remember that being up in your bedroom. But okay, sure, whatever. Maybe you moved it. Well, he looked and there is no plug on that counter. And so the lamp was never there. Especially because Walter is also like, yeah, I used to leave the lamp on. Da, 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 da. Which means that the sex worker was not hit in the kitchen by the counter she was hit in walter's bedroom okay and that's where we learn just how unreliable of a narrator walter is and that's why i enjoyed this book so much because between my expectations for it and the blurb i thought i had it figured out but you really just never know when walter is lying and when those lies are going to be revealed so it's like you're being told information And you're like, okay, this is interesting. Okay, cool. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, nope, that was all eyes. Classic Walter. Classic Walter. So Walter goes on to tell in explicit detail how he kidnapped the rest of the victims. I'm not going to give all that away here because, like I said before, like I feel like a big part of the appeal of the book is stuff like that. Because the, the the full title is In My Father's Basement a serial killer novel. And I feel like people are going to see serial killer and they're going to want to read about all the crazy shit that the killer does. Yeah, for sure. So I'm not going to tell you because I want you to go read it. Go support this author. Support indie authors. Um, I will remind you here that you have to take everything Walter says with a grain of salt. So in a way, who knows what really happened as he kidnapped these victims. 
Once he has them in the basement, Walter comes up with all kinds of fun little games to torture them and things like that. There's definitely plenty of like gruesome violence and hopelessness and like Walter being emotionless and all that stuff. Like it's creepy. It's definitely like scary. And I will tell you one thing that he does to them because it's funny how it relates to me. So if you're wanting to avoid spoilers, gentle listener, I recommend skipping a few minutes ahead. It's not a major spoiler, but it's still technically a spoiler. So at one point, Walter decides that he does not want his prisoners plotting to escape. So he makes it so that they can't plot to escape by scraping out their eardrums with a flathead screwdriver. Gross. Yeah, pretty intense. Now, as you, Max, know, and as our gentle listeners, she's gays and theys, I feel like we are friends now, so I can share gross personal habits to an extent with you. If I have an itch in my inner ear, I will scratch it with the earpiece of my glasses. Not like rooting around or anything, just scratching an itch. Not only do I do this, but I was literally in the middle of indulging in this habit of mine when I reached the eardrum portion of the book. Yep, I can confirm that. And let me tell you, I oh so delicately removed my glasses earpiece and put those fuckers back on my face. That's intense. It's like one of my biggest fears is that I'll be doing that and you'll like run into me or accidentally scare me or something like that. And I'll just like, done. God, I bet their hearing was screwed after that. Oh. <laughs> All right, I don't really want to go into too much more detail about the plot. Like I said, I don't really want to spoil it. Just know there's lots of the gruesome detail of the treatment of the victims that's also interspersed with scenes of Isaac trying his best to live his life while also trying to, like, shop around to get as much money for the recordings as possible, which is fun. Um, In all honesty, it's very well done. And because Walter is such an unreliable narrator, there are plenty of twists that you won't see coming. So we never really know what's going on. And honestly, by the end of the book, you still don't know exactly what happened in that basement. It's like you think you know. You have what Walter says combined with what Isaac knows about Walter and therefore where those lies might have occurred. But at the end of the day, you don't. And I don't know. I kind of like that. Yeah, no, it's kind of interesting. It leaves it a mystery. But all in all, I'm going to give this one five out of five flathead screwdrivers with suspicious origins. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed reading it. Anytime I found myself thinking, hmm, this is getting boring and predictable. All of a sudden, you found out it was a big bag of lies. So it kept it exciting. I also really liked the underlying commentary about morality and humanity. I was really glad to be pleased again after being so impressed by the venue. And I'm really excited to read the third book at some point, probably relatively soon, to see if we can hit three for three. It seems so different than the venue. Because I remember the venue seemed a little, I don't, I don't know how else to put it, other than kind of like campy at times. It was definitely campy. This was like... This seems more like horror horror. This was like... I would have really enjoyed this when I, well, I enjoyed it now. That's not to say I'd enjoy it now, but like my peak time for enjoying it would have been like when I was 20 and a dishwasher at a seafood restaurant and just angry at everything (laughs) and really wanted like an angry book. Because at the end of the day, like Isaac is angry at the world 
Walter is angry at the world. They're handling it differently. This also seems like the kind of thing that would really appeal to the people, the listeners that we have that are crossovers from the true crime listeners. Definitely. There's a lot of kind of overlap there. Yeah. I could see that for sure. But it was really good. Go read it. Well, if you were in in my father's basement, would you be killed? Absolutely. So a lot of how Walter chooses his victims is fueled by this deep hate for anyone who like challenges or doesn't fit into the blue collar guy next door narrative mm-hmm. of like average Joe guy kind of thing. And as a non-passing, very gay man, I feel like I could have very easily been targeted by that and everyone in the basement dies. So yeah, death. Would you have died in the windmill? Hopefully you're going to say no. <laughs> But who knows? Gentle listener, strap in. This might be a revelation for me as well as you. Well, I've never killed anybody. So I guess if that's the criteria for it, then probably not. Also, um, also, I don't necessarily see myself taking a windmill tour in the Netherlands ever. So You say that as if I have no interest in going on a windmill tour. And if I go, <laughs> you're going. I know, to be honest. I bet you if we're ever in Amsterdam, we probably will do that. But... uh. I would say no. I don't necessarily think I've done anything like to that caliber of like, I mean, like I said, they kill murderers and I've never murdered anybody. I've, I mean, I have met and talked to a lot of murderers. It's just a thing. Again, it's what I do for a living. But myself, no, I've never murdered anybody. So yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I, I mean, I guess it kind of depends. So let me, I'll, I'll just clarify this. I don't know exactly to what level of bad person you need to be for the Miller to kill you. Like, do you have to be a murderer? Or could he also kill you because, like... You wear cargo shorts. (laughs) Well, I mean... Yeah, that's probably the next step down from murder. Yeah, I mean, it's right there. It's, like, neck and neck, honestly. But I don't wear cargo shorts either, so... I think I would probably be safe from him. Anyway... Gentle listener, if you wear cargo shorts, get better shorts. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads at Second Pod. You can also email us questions, comments, concerns, corrections at secondtodiepod at gmail.com or directly on Instagram. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.